Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. A young boy who looks to be about two years old is on a beach as water gently laps around him on the brown sand. He's wearing a red t-shirt, blue shorts, and running shoes that have these brown rubber soles. He lays on the ground with his hands by his side. His face rests in the sand. It's almost like he's sleeping, but he's not. The boy is not moving. What led him to this place? On September 2nd, 2015, the world awoke to that image, to the devastating and heartbreaking picture of a young child dead on a Mediterranean beach. His story shed light on the perilous journey that some take to seek a new and better life. And for a brief moment, that one photo mobilized people around the world to open their hearts and help those fleeing Syria. I'm Erica Vela, a journalist with Global News. Over the next two episodes, I will share the story of Alan Kurdi, and we'll find out whatever happened to his family and to the many others that fled during the Syrian refugee crisis. Back in 2015, I remember seeing the photo of Alan Curdy and getting this sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. This young boy should have been playing in the sand instead of laying lifeless. An accompanying photo from that horrific day shows a Turkish police officer carrying Alan's small, lifeless body away. Both images are graphic, disturbing. But how did this happen? I think it's important to know that the Curdy family's story is one of many. Hundreds of thousands of people have attempted to flee Syria in hopes of a better life, a life away from war and conflict. So before we look into Alan's story, we need to talk about why people were fleeing Syria in the first place. Ferry de Kerkhove has worked in a whole host of different roles in his career, including working with the Canadian Foreign Service. He now works as an advisor to the president of the University of Ottawa for Security, Women and Peace. He spent time in Syria, and he told me that before the war, it was a gem in the Middle East. 
it's just an it was an it's an incredibly beautiful country with sceneries that vary from the seashore to the mountains to ancient monument the city of Aleppo was one of the most beautiful one uh, Damascus was okay there were this, the heart of Damascus was absolutely extraordinary the mosque was beautiful we're talking about a jewel. We're talking about people sophisticated. We're talking about people extraordinarily welcoming. It's very hard for the Western world to understand how extraordinary these countries are because we only see the negative part of it. We see the Bashar al-Assad, we see uh, Saddam Hussein, but be- beyond that, we're talking about human beings of remarkable quality. That jewel and the people who lived there became entangled in a civil war. You've got to start with the second Gulf War in 2003, when unfortunately the American decided that they were going to take out the Iraqi alleged nuclear weapon facilities, which did not materialize. But the Iraq war created a, a set of growing terrorist activities beyond what 9-11 had provided. And that's when there was a splinter group from al-Qaeda, which was called eventually ISIS or Daesh, and it was led by former prisoners of the uh, American in Iraq by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So that's the beginning. Fast forward to 2010 and the Arab Spring, an uprising in Middle Eastern countries that saw a series of anti-government protests happen. The Arab Spring is started in Tunisia, where a young man who was selling fruits and vegetables on a stand was harassed by the police who told him he didn't have a permit. And he decided to immolate himself and burn down. And, and uh, he died. But that that event created an uprising against Ben Ali, the, the president of Tunisia, and the, the people won against the regime, despite, again, being attacked ferociously. And that movement widened throughout the, the Arab world. It made its way to Syria after school children, inspired by the uprisings that were happening in neighboring countries, were caught spraying graffiti on a wall in Daraa. The boys were between the ages of 13 and 16 years old, and they were arrested and tortured. People who opposed the Syrian regime led by Bashar al-Assad began protesting. Ferry said ISIS took advantage of the unrest. You had ISIS becoming a power of itself, transforming itself in, in, in the Islamic Caliphate, which eventually covered Iraq and Syria. And the whole idea of ISIS was to conquer the former Muslim empire. So the, 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 the takeover of really huge swat of territory, larger than, than Britain, as it were, uh, created, of course, a major rift into, in the Middle East, which started leading to the attempt by Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, to try to reconquer his country. Life in Syria had become increasingly dangerous. By March 2011, Syria fell into a messy civil war of shifting foreign and domestic alliances and power players. President Bashar al-Assad was intent on holding on to power. 
those who opposed him, intent on seeing him ousted. Death and destruction started in cities like Dara, then moved to larger cities, homes, Aleppo, and the outskirts of Damascus. You had flows of, of Syrian uh, fleeing the country, moving to Lebanon and, and trying to literally get out. And so you, you, you find yourself in a multiplicity of conflict zone and area within which you have refugees in, in, in increasing number uh, trying to get out of Syria. We're talking about millions displaced. We talk about hundreds of thousands of people killed during those events. It's it's of a major proportion. Millions displaced. Hundreds of thousands of people killed. These were ordinary people, like you or me, that went from living regular lives filled with dreams for the future to suddenly having their hopes dashed, taken away because of war. Syria is more than 9,000 kilometers away from Toronto. And with each kilometer, it's easy to feel completely disconnected from those being ravaged by war. But I wanted to know what it means to be displaced. I turned to Rima Jamos. She's the Canadian representative for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So UNHCR is the UN's refugee agency, and what we do is basically support refugees and asylum seekers when they seek refuge or international protection outside of their borders. So when they cross an international border and seek asylum, UNHCR is there to to provide support on a number of different fronts. The UNHCR is the UN Agency for Refugees, and it defines refugees as people who have fled war, violence, conflict, or persecution, and have crossed an international border to find safety in another country. They often flee with little more than the clothes on their back, leaving behind homes, possessions, jobs, and even loved ones. Rima told me that the UNHCR sets up camps for refugees fleeing war-torn countries. Those camps provide the basic necessities of life—food, water, shelter, and health care. All those things that we are afforded every single day and often take for granted— Syria was experiencing uh, and continues to experience um, an intense conflict, um, which— was disproportionately impacting civilians and resulted in casualties in destruction of civilian infrastructure, including homes, schools, hospitals, clinics. Um, We saw intense levels of violence and we saw masses of people fleeing for their lives. The the direct impacts of the war uh, was essentially felt most closely by civilians who were who were subject to all sorts of bombardment, siege, um, and did not have, as a result, um, access to the basic necessities of life. So they were they were dealing directly with the impact of war, first and foremost in, in terms of the threat to their lives and their day-to-day existence, but then that had consequences and knock-on effects on their ability to access basic things like 
safe shelter, water, food, um, education, healthcare, any any kind of day-to-day necessity of life was directly impacted. Rima said 13 million people in Syria were in need of urgent help. This included the over 6 million people who were internally displaced. These were people who fled one part of the country to go to another area that was maybe only slightly safer. And I wanted to take a minute to really put this into context. It's estimated that 6 million people were internally displaced. That's double the population of Toronto, the largest city in Canada. Think about that for a moment. A population double the size of Canada's biggest city left their homes seeking safety. It's as if all of those people left Toronto and suddenly fled to Calgary. It's difficult to comprehend, but just imagine what that would be like. Since conflict began, at least 250,000 people have died and hundreds of thousands of others have been wounded. Millions that weren't internally displaced fled to neighboring countries like Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. And many more tried to escape to Europe. A choice between life and death in many instances. And we know that for those Syrians who were seeking protection and seeking asylum and refuge outside of Syria, some of them felt that they had no choice but to undertake very perilous and dangerous uh, journeys by sea um, and, and trying to cross over bodies of water in flimsy, unseaworthy vessels um, at the hands of unscrupulous human smugglers and traffickers who were exploiting them and exploiting their desperation as they sought to seek that safety elsewhere. And this is where the story of the Curdy family begins. In my quest to tell their story, I reached out to Alan Curdy's aunt, Tima Curdy. She moved to Canada from Syria in 1992, and she lives in British Columbia. She has five siblings, Mohammed, Maha, Shireen, Hevron, and Abdullah, Alan Kurdi's father. Tima says she was close with her brother Abdullah, and they spoke over video calls often. And that's how she got to know her nephews, even though they were still in Syria. The way... You know, they want to sing together to me. Um, They put the music one time, you know, and Kurdish song, and they start dancing for their auntie. You know, I show them everything around my house, from the fish inside my living room, that one day they're going to come, to I took them to my garden when I was planting some, you know, flower. Um, the way Ghalib, he showed me, you know, when they have their cat. They have a cat, and uh, she was, a, you know, um, their, their friend. It's just innocent kids, what innocent kids can do. Happy, laughing, singing. When the civil war began to escalate, each of Tima's siblings fled Syria and went to Turkey. By 2014, Abdullah was working in Turkey and sent whatever money he made back home to Syria to help his wife, Rehana, and his two sons, Galeb and Alan, 
who were living there. But in September of that year, news broke that the Islamic State militants invaded Kobani, where Rehana, Ghalib, and Alan were living. ISIS is now thought to control up to 40% of Kobani, despite U.S.-led airstrikes targeting vehicles, weapons, and buildings used by the militants. Living under constant fear, Syrians have been at the center of a bloody civil war. Violent clashes between rebels and Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's regime and the insurgence of terror group ISIS has created utter chaos. Abdullah wanted to get his wife and two children to Turkey. The three would have to travel to the Syrian-Turkish border, but it wasn't going to be easy, as thousands of Syrian citizens were also looking to escape. Rehana started to call Abdullah, and we were sitting, you know, they're fleeing Kobani with other thousands of people. I would never also forget that moment, how her and the two boys, they were just stuck at that closed border trying to enter Turkey. Tima said it took two days for Rehana, Alan, and Galib to get through the border. But finally, the family reunited in Turkey. This would be just the first step in their perilous journey, which they would now be embarking on together. Meanwhile, Tima was home in B.C., and she knew that although they were safe from the bombings, they were still living in a state of uncertainty. Tima said that the only way she would feel settled is if her family could make it to Canada. From the minute they entered Turkey and I saw the situation in 2014, I was like coming here and I said, I need to help my family. I need to get them to safety. And of course, you know, it was impossible. You know, the the destruction was put um, in our, you know, you know, to bring in refugee was impossible. They make it to fail. Tima says she felt like it was an impossible feat. And I wanted to understand why she felt this way. I turned to Dr. Efrat Arbel. She's an associate professor at UBC and works at the Allard School of Law. Dr. Arbel explained that there are a few ways people can enter Canada as refugees. The first is through the resettlement program. Resettlement is a program whereby um, state governments, for example, the Canadian governments, negotiates with the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, to admit refugees into the country. That process is done usually while the individuals are overseas. And there's a lengthy process of uh, screening and um, security protocols and the like. And um, once that process is complete, the individuals or the families arrive in Canada as permanent residents, having already satisfied all of the requirements that are imposed by the Canadian states. There are a few different streams under this resettlement program. A refugee can enter as a government-assisted refugee. That means their resettlement in Canada is entirely supported by the government, and they only make up a small handful of those who arrive in the country. Private sponsorships are also part of the resettlement program. That's when a group of Canadians come together to sponsor a refugee. Oftentimes, you hear of church groups sponsoring a family, for example. 
And for one year, the sponsors offer financial support and help refugees acclimate to life here in Canada. But there is one other way to claim asylum, one which is much more dangerous. The other means through which individuals seek protection is just by uh, leaving their countries of origin and um, making a journey to whichever state they can access or whichever state um, might be able to extend them protection. And the the terminology for this differs according to kind of where you are around the world, but um, those individuals are typically called refugee claimants in Canada or asylum seekers elsewhere in the world. Um, And those two terms mean the same thing. They often uh, get used interchangeably. And for those individuals, the 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 journey itself, um, the 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 process of leaving one's country of origin, um, is exceedingly difficult. And um, from the Canadian perspective, that journey is made much more difficult by the fact that Canada works to um, prevent refugees from accessing state territories by erecting barriers that make it either exceedingly difficult or in certain situations virtually impossible for refugees to actually set foot on Canadian soil and seek protection here. Earlier, I mentioned Tima had other siblings living in Turkey who had also fled Syria. And she told me that in 2014, she was working towards bringing both of her brothers, Abdullah and Mohammed, and their families to Canada through the resettlement program. Tima started with Mohammed's application first because he had five children, four of them who were school-age children, and they wanted to get them settled into some sort of structure. Abdullah's children, Alan and Galeb, were younger. Alan was two and Ghalib was four. Timo was waiting for Mohammed's application to go through before filing Abdullah's paperwork. She says as they waited weeks and months, Abdullah, Rehana, Ghalib, and Alan were excited at the thought of starting a new life in Canada. I remember even talking to uh, Rehani and uh, Abdullah, and they have so much hope. So much hope because we discuss everything. Do not worry when you get here to Canada. Those those boys, they're going to go to school. You know, Ghalib, and he has something in his, um, his skin. We, we didn't know, like, what is it? And Abdullah was struggling a lot about him buying, the, you know, some medication for him. So... Um, All those stuff, you know, was very simple. While the family dreamt of better days, it became clear they would not be able to return to Syria. Things became even more dangerous. There were reports of unimaginable atrocities and human rights violations. Tima says there's one phone call with her brother Abdullah that stands out. When ISIS invaded Rehani, one time I phoned Abdullah and Rehani. And Rehan is crying, crying in so loud in the background that again, another bad news. I went, I said to Abdullah, why she's crying? And he said, 12, 13 of our relatives been beheaded from Kobani. And he starts sent me those pictures. 
the picture you can't even look at. We've seen it in a horror movie and we think it's fake, but it actually was a true. Hearing the horror people faced in Syria, the country that was once her home, Tima said she knew she needed to get her family to safety. The refugee application was the lifeline that the Kurdi family needed. It took almost six months. Tima finally got a response from the federal government about her brother Mohammed's application. It was rejected. Stephen Harper and the conservatives were in government at the time, and officials said the application wasn't accepted because of a lack of necessary documentation. Because Mohammed's application was denied, Tima didn't file Abdullah's papers. Abdullah said, and Rihani, they said, you know, it's enough. There is impossible for us to be in Canada. So you did your best, you know. You know, everybody's trying to help you. But Canada, there is not, it's going to happen. But Tima said that as they talked, they came up with another idea. We're hearing lots of uh, people were, do, you know, what they're doing. They're trying to smuggle themselves to Europe. And all of a sudden, even from that Skype talk, I remember even Abdullah when he said, can you help us? money so we can do this. It would cost $5,000 for his family to be taken from Turkey to Europe. She said she knew that it would be a dangerous journey and that her husband didn't love the idea either. He said, are you crazy? You're going to pay the smuggler money? No, you cannot do this. And I said, you know, it's been six months and... The situation is getting worse. It's not only my family. There is thousands of other people. They believe there is, you know, only God is going to, you know, bring hope to them. And after, you know, a week, two weeks, and I talked to my dad, I, you know, even with my husband, and finally we decide, you know, 5000 is going to cost to give you the future, let's do it. Before I go any further, you might be wondering, why would the Kurdis want to leave Turkey? The answer has to do partly with its location and a little bit of history. Turkey has been a destination for displaced Kurds, which are a minority ethnic group from the mountainous regions of Western Asia. Kurds make up around 20 to 25 percent of Turkey's population of 82 million. A first wave of displacement happened in the 1920s and 1930s, followed by another in the 1990s. This is an ongoing issue in Turkey. Since 2016, the Turkish government has turned towards authoritarianism and implemented aggressive and anti-democratic policies. This has increased an anti-Kurdish sentiment in the country. The ongoing civil war and instability in Syria increased the number of displaced people in Turkey. 2016 was also the year of the EU-Turkey deal, which largely stopped people crossing the Aegean from Turkey to Greece. 
This made it almost impossible for refugees to consider moving anywhere else because the deal recognizes Turkey as a safe country for Syrian refugees. So as more displaced individuals arrived in Turkey looking for asylum, the country's policies created a situation where Syrian refugees and their property were often attacked. A report by the Human Rights Association, a Turkish-Kurdish group which monitors human rights in the country, shows hate crimes against minorities, which includes Syrians and Kurds, are on the rise. Dozens of people have been killed and hundreds wounded in the past decade. This has included direct violence, as well as marginalization, discrimination, and cultural violence against their identity and heritage. Partly because Syrian refugees often look to other countries as their final destination. It took a couple of weeks, but Tima Kurdi sent money to Abdullah and his family. They were going to take the voyage to Europe and start a new life there. For the first time ever, she says it looked like things were finally falling into place. Abdullah said to me, you know, me and Rehanian last night when we get the money, we were thinking like everything is working out. And we received the last money. Tima said getting to Europe wouldn't be easy. Abdullah, Rehana, and their two kids, Galeb and Alan, previously made two unsuccessful attempts to get to Greece. Both times, they were brought back to Turkey. The third attempt happened in September 2015. The family boarded a small boat in Bodrum, Turkey, heading to Kos, a Greek island. They were on their way to what they thought would be a better life. Abdullah sent me the text message, and he said, pray to us and tell all my family, this is it, we're leaving tonight. I, I know I didn't hear from him, and somehow I fall asleep that night for a few hours. I woke up like it was between 4 or 5 a.m., and there's something, that feeling. It's like a butterfly inside my heart, and it was like I can hear my heartbeat. There is something there. Sadly, Tima's premonition was a tragic one. And I was like, God, hopefully they are okay. Hopefully they are okay. I rushed to my kitchen where I left my phone. And I opened my phone. And there is like a dozen of missed calls, not text messages, from all my family, from Turkey, from Syria even from Germany, cousin, I was like, I start shaking more. I couldn't hold my phone. And I was like, who do I phone first? What do I do? Something is wrong. That feeling. And then I phone first, I phone my sister Shireen in uh, Damascus, Syria. And the connection was so bad. Like, imagine you are dying, there is something wrong, and you can't understand the person. And she keeps saying stuff. It's just like, you can't even understand what she's saying. All of a sudden, I heard Abdullah, and a sound of she's really crying. 
And I just, from shaking my hand, just dropped my phone and it was like, who next I gonna pick up the phone again? I said, no, there is somebody I need to talk to. Hand up the phone and I called my sister-in-law in Turkey. And I said, why are you crying? And I started crying and I started without knowing anything because that feeling I know. There is something wrong. What's wrong with Abdullah? And she won't say anything. She's crying and crying. Stop crying. Just tell me the news. And that's what she said. Rihani, Alan, and Ghalib have drowned. That's when I dropped my phone. And I started screaming as loud as I could. I fall to the floor. I want the world to hear me. No. Why? The first thing was in my mouth was, it's all my fault. It's all my fault. I sent him the money. Why did I do that? Their hopes of a bright future where their children could be free were tragically taken away. I found a video of Abdullah describing the night in detail to a reporter with the Associated Press. He said they were at sea for four minutes. The captain saw the waves, panicked, and dove into the sea and fled. Abdullah said he took over and started steering. The waves were so high that the boat flipped. That night, Alan, Ghalib, and Rehana Kurdi all died. If you're wondering why anyone would put themselves in this sort of danger, Dr. Arbel, the professor I spoke with that specializes in refugee law, said that for many, it's the only option left. Refugees are by definition persecuted people, people who have um, either suffered or are um, subject to uh, what Canadian courts have identified as sustained and systemic violations of basic human rights. This can involve um, threats to their life, um, uh, threats to the lives of their loved ones. People generally don't pick up and leave um, their countries of origin. It's very, very hard to, uh, number one, leave your country of origin, number two, make it to another state, and number three, settle within that state and establish a life for yourself and for your loved ones. People only leave in situations of extreme vulnerability, where they are subject to the kind of persecution that makes their life almost impossible to live. Um, and it, it's very important to recognize that um, people don't take their lives into their own hands and certainly don't take the lives of their children or their loved ones into their hands unless they know that the, the alternative that they face of staying where they are is worse. Um, you know, we often speak about this as you're, you're facing the certainty of death if you stay and only a possibility of death if you leave. Hearing that, knowing that if you stay, you're facing persecution, and if you leave, a chance for survival and only the possibility of death, 
it gave me goosebumps. It's something that Tima spoke to me about as well. This is the thing with people that don't understand because they never experience the really human suffer. We live far away from the reality. You know, it's really when you watch the news, I'm sure there is many, many people around the world. They feel sorry for those suffering people, but they move on in their life because it's not our reality, not our problem. When you're actually in the ground and you hear people personally, like what I did, it's really changed my life. You know, I want to help as much as I can. But first, you reach out to your family first, right? So for me, after my husband and my son, they wake up running, you know, what happened, what happened? It took me really, really at least more than 15 minutes so they can understand me what happened. I was really, I hope nobody ever will experience what I did that day. After learning about the death of Rehana Ghalib and Alan Kurdi, Tima and her husband turned to the internet for answers. And I said, can you Google something in the news about you know, what happened in Turkey, somebody talking about this tragedy. And uh, he left the room. All of a sudden he come back and he has his iPad behind him. And he's looking at me. And I look and I said, what you are hiding from me? And he said, I don't know if you want to see something. I'm not sure what is this if it's related to you or not. But there is an image nobody can watch. So I stand up and I said, give me that. And he said, no, I don't want you to see it. And I was fighting and I grabbed that photo. So I'm looking at the photo in front of me. There is something about that photo. I did not know who this boy is, but there is something about this innocent young boy lying down at that beach. All of a sudden, I said to my husband, I know that boot, that shoes. I, I know that red T-shirt, that short. This belonged to me, to us. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm not sure, but this boy is belong to us. And he said, no, you're too emotional. And this is really, really powerful image. No one can look at it without his heart to be in a million of pieces. So I was like, okay, I forward the picture to my sister-in-law in Turkey. And I said to her, can you please tell me who's this picture belong to who? And of course she didn't answer and I'm waiting. So I picked up the phone 
and I phoned her and I said, who's this picture? And she said, it's Alan. It's Alan. Tima said she tried to get in touch with her brother, Abdullah. And I'm crying. The first thing I said to him, I'm so sorry. It's my fault. It's my fault. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then Abdullah said to me, even though he's in, I don't know what word can I describe it, his situation, his feeling, he tried to comfort me. And he said, don't ever feel that it was your fault. You are the best sister in the world. You were trying to help us. And I said, where are you now? And he said, I am in the hospital, standing in front of a three dead body. And he said to me, did you see the image of my boy? Later on, and I said, yes. And he said, God put his, his light and shine the light in that image to wake up the world. And that it was my wake-up call. And that's when I said, I need to do something. I need to scream to the world and say, enough is enough. I need the world to wake up. In September 2015, the world woke up to that tragic image of Alan on the beach. It motivated many to act. When the photo surfaced, Canada was in the middle of a federal election, and all three major party leaders at the time addressed the photo. Conservative leader Stephen Harper said this. The first thing that crossed our mind was, you know, remembering our own son Ben at that age, running around like that. Then, NDP leader Thomas Mulcair. This morning we see a little boy getting picked up on a beach. As a dad and a grandfather, it's just unbearable that we're doing nothing. And liberal leader Justin Trudeau. Canada, over the past years, has failed to be the country that we like to imagine it to be. The photo of the boy on the beach would change the course of the 2015 federal election. The Syrian refugee crisis became a major election topic, and each party promised to bring Syrian refugees over to Canada. October 19, 2015, Canadians went to the polls to vote. This particular election had been a heated one. He's like a celebrity who says things before thinking them through. Conservative attack ads focused on Justin Trudeau, calling him inexperienced. People, being prime minister is not an entry-level job. Nice hair, though. Justin Trudeau. He's just not ready. And on election night, a red wave swept across the country. Justin Trudeau was chosen as the country's next prime minister, ousting Stephen Harper from the job. Merci. Canadians have spoken. You want a government with a vision and an agenda for this country that is positive and ambitious and hopeful. 
We know in our bones that Canada was built by people from all corners of the world who worship every faith, who belong to every culture, who speak every language. Tima Curdy, Alan's aunt, recalled that moment when she had learned about the government's commitment to bring Syrian refugees to safety. It was a bittersweet moment for her family. I was actually in Kurdistan, Erbil, with my brother Abdullah. And all of a sudden, I had a message from somebody here in Canada forwarded to me. I can't remember. And they're saying, oh my God, Tima, that the new government promised to bring in 25,000 Syrian refugees to Canada within the next three months. And I look at Abdullah, I remember we're sitting there in, in the hotel, and I look at Abdullah, I said, oh my God, Abdullah, you don't believe what happened in Canada. And I told him, and he looked at me, and he said, but they couldn't do it for my family. But I'm very happy. God willing, inshallah, God willing, those 25 innocent souls, they will have a good future in Canada. The Liberals promised they would resettle 25,000 Syrian refugees in Canada. But I've often wondered, did Trudeau follow through on his promises? And where does the conflict stand now? Also, what happened to the rest of the Kurdi siblings? That's next time on Whatever Happened To. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks goes out to Tima Kurdi for sharing her family's story. Whatever Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Bella, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. A special thanks goes out to Beatrice Politi, Network Managing Editor for Global News. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about the show and help me share these incredible stories by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're always looking for news stories, so if there is a news story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vella or email me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.